Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Dr. Mohammed Fraser Rahim. Mohammed is currently the Executive Director, North America for Quilliam International, and there should be a link to that in his bio as well in the episode notes. Mohammed is not only a scholar of religion and Islam, uh, he also he has traditional training and academic training, but he's also uh, he has been at the forefront of tackling violence and extremism in the United States and abroad. Uh, formerly uh, working inside the U.S. government and now currently working in the NGO space. I'm very fortunate to have worked alongside him on very exciting projects in the past, and I'm even more fortunate to call him a friend. Uh, so Mohammed is one of my good friends. Uh, I always turn to him for advice, uh, very wise, and uh, always has a fresh perspective on a lot of the current issues that we're dealing with, and he really helps me um, you know, handicap my own thinking he helps me walk through a lot of uh, difficulties sometimes that I have understanding because he has such a different background than me, similar but different. Uh, and this is why I enjoyed this conversation so much. So, Mohammed, thank you very much again for giving me uh, so much of your time. Uh, and I hope everyone will find this as beneficial as I did. Enjoy. Mohammed, thank you for making the time. I appreciate it. Uh, inviting me into your, your beautiful home here in D.C., uh, I've gotten to know you the last couple of years, and you actually said something to me when we first met that still rings in my ears, and I want to mention it. I hope you remember it, and you, I want you to elaborate on it. We were talking one time, I can't remember the specific issue, but we were talking about something, and I kept saying, but you know the Muslim community in the U.S. Uh, might react this way, they might react that way, and then you stopped me, and you're like, you have to understand, I come from a completely different community. I come from the Warth Din Muhammad community, mm -hmm. and we have a, a totally different way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And I think that was important for me because coming from an immigrant family, mm -hmm. by default, I was in the immigrant you know, community, the Isna, the Ikna, that kind of thing. Uh, and it is a little bias that, that I, sometimes you need to check yourself that you have that, um, those blinders on. But I want you to elaborate on that. What, what does it mean to come from the Warth Dean Muhammad community in the, in the United States? What what does that background mean for you and you know the thousands of people that come from the background mm -hmm. and how, as American Muslims, how can we be more balanced in looking at the wider American Muslim community? Sure, thank you for having me, uh, Tarek. It's it's an honor um, for sure, and I'm thinking about our time spending in Egypt together too as well. We've definitely been in the Muslim world and spent some time together, but I think the the particularly as it relates to the community of Imam Muhammad, really I call this community, the, it's part of the evolution of the American Muslim community. The American Muslim community, to be very clear, is not a monolith. 
um, the, the, the first wave of Muslims coming to the United States proper is really in two forms. First, you have the enslaved African Muslims who arrived, um, and the late Dr. Suleiman Yang, who just passed away this past week, used to call it a 40-year gap. Um, between African Islam and African American Islam. What does he mean when he says African Islam? Meaning the customs, the traditions, the rituals that many individuals are used to learning Islamic thought. Ajramiya, uh, the the use of repetition in terms of studying Nahu, Sarf, Balaga, that any young child would have learned in a madrasa, an Islamic school throughout the known Islamic world. They're used to the rituals and traditions. So many West African Muslims, um, like Muslims in the Arab and broader Islamic world, were used to a continuity of Islamic body of knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation. So this gap that Dr. Yang characterized is this separation, this cutoff, um, and in lar- large part of that is a result of the experience of the enslaved Africans coming to America, where their culture was stripped, their religion was stripped, their identity was stripped in, in such a violent way that a reconstruction or a deconstruction and then a reconstruction had to take place. And so this is where we have slavery, Jim Crow laws, etc. To make a long story short, we have the evolution of the African-American community. And, and the African-American community doesn't happen, right, happen in isolation. I always say, and this is an important thing to highlight as well, is that you have the influence of the Ahmadiyya community through the use of Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, who was an Ahmadiyya missionary who arrived into the United States in the ne- early 1900s. And he's bringing with him, and he comes as a religious officer from what we now know, Pakistan, um, or the Indian subcontinent, and he brings with him Ahmadiyya Islam. Now, that seems very blasphemous for many of those who are struggling and deal with the larger issues of Ahmadiyya influence or, or the, the tensions we know that's taking place and some of the violence. I won't necessarily get into this today, but it shows you that there's an Ahmadiyya form of Islam that was in the United States right after the, the period of the enslaved period of, uh, in the, of, of Muslim identity. And so the, the community the development of Islam in America after the enslaved African Muslims and some traces of Islamic identity being able to make its way in the sea islands of South Carolina and Georgia. We know many scholars estimate between 15 to 30, upwards of 40 percent of the enslaved African Muslim population came from Muslim lands in West Africa. But we have this gap of, of basically this slow erasure I should say, this slow erasure of Islam in America and those customs were lost. Um, and we have uh, key personalities like Ab- Ibrahim Abdurrahman. Uh, we have individuals like Yaro Mahmoud, etc., um, who are key personalities that are well documented in, in the United States history. But this Ahmadiyya Islam that comes brings with them sort of a framing of some elements, obviously, of traditional orthodoxy. But it was um, through the Ahmadiyya missionaries, and particularly Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, who realized rather quickly when he first came that he wanted to recruit initially to white Americans. Um, he wasn't quite skilled and conversant to know that there were a large amount of population of African or enslaved Africans or, le- or, the, or the descendants of enslaved Africans. And he realized that, that this community was much more susceptible and much more open to this message that would bring Islam. And so the Ahmadiyya community is vital. I say that any of the major Muslim organizations, Muslim communities owe a debt 
to the Akhmadiyya communities, regardless of your ideological position of it, of what took place in the past or what's happening in current geopolitical issues in, um, in, in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and so the Akhmadiyya community comes and they realize quickly that they needed to target African-Americans. To me, speed up a very long story, we have the influence of the Ahmadiyyas that were very much vital to what we know the modern-day nation of Islam. The nation of Islam, and as a, as a historian by training, was a social reform movement that used Islamic motifs, Islamic symbolism, and it used elements of Freemasonry. It used elements of what I characterize as, as an Islamic hybrid theology. And that Islamic hybrid theology was addressing the circumstances of the, in this case, the African-American experience. And so the Nation of Islam, when you can look at it in sort of a social, anthropological, historical context, it was reforming a community that had been deeply affected and stripped of its identity, its roots, and it brought Islamic ideas and principles. If you study any of the sort of teachings of the Nation of Islam and you do sort of a, a postmortem analysis, you will see that there were references of the Quran, there were references of Islam, there were references of Muhammad the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, inside the various uh, texts in the catechism. And I think now we can look at it that it offered some elements of Islam that helped radically reform individuals who were former prostitutes and drug dealers, etc. So for that context, one has to see it within its time-space reality and that it would bring individuals into what we now know Orthodox Sunni Islam. We then speed up into 1975. Before, before yes. let me just ask you a quick question. Sure. Those original Ahmadi missionaries that you said they came at the sort of the beginning of the 1900s. Okay. Are there remnants of those original Ahmadi communities still around, or do they morph into sort of one movement after another? Yeah, I think that these communities are still around right here in Washington, D.C. We have one of the oldest um, uh, Ahmadi uh, mosques that it's, that's here in, in the United States. Um, their communities are still uh, in the United States. They're around. Um, and there are some of the first jazz musicians were Ahmadis. Mm. Um, they were Ahmadi Muslims in, in a lot of them. And their outer appearance, you'll see they're wearing fezes that have a very much a, a, a Southeast Asian tinge to it or, or a Southeast Asian sort of um, aesthetic to it. And that was because of the Ahmadiyya influence. Could you give us some names of the jazz um, so musicians? We, so we have uh, Yusuf Latif, um, who very famous um, um, jazz musician. We have... Um, um, and, and many others too as well that I'm going I'm blanking at the moment but there, there, there are several different jazz musicians who were certainly influenced um, and they were um, they, they embraced this um, Islam and at the time I'm not quite sure if they saw it as Ahmadiyya Islam and that labeling that might be connected mm -hmm. to some of the dynamics in the Southeast Asian context I think it was more of this is Islam and these were the individuals that brought me this form of Islam and then with the rise of different Islamic ideological interpretations, they were able to say, oh, okay, this is maybe what's being mm -hmm. uh, articulated. I think it might, you know, and so I, I think that that's... So 1975. 1975, I, I yes, that. absolutely. So we have then in 1975 the evolution of uh, where the son of Elijah Muhammad, W.D. Muhammad, Worth D. Muhammad, Wallace Muhammad, uh, his name, um, he... Uh, essentially was exiled about three to four times by his father because he rejected his father's position on some Al-Qaeda topics. Um, and, and I think there's enough, there's enough literature out there that one can do a bit more investigation on that. And so his father 
excommunicated him and he challenged his father's viewpoints on what he saw as key fundamental points on Islam. Um, but in 1975, after the death of Elijah Muhammad, uh, Worthy Muhammad ushered in the largest communal conversion to what we know Orthodox Islam. And I think that this is an important idea because here you have individuals, and I characterize it in a book that I'm writing, is essentially at least a 43-year counter-radical or de-radicalization wow. of individuals who were formerly very much radical, fundamentalist, extremists in their interpretation, that they believed in part of their framing that the blonde-haired, blue-eyed white person was the devil personified, um, that, that they were believing that the black man was supreme. Um, and those teachings were also very much anti-government, anti-U.S., anti-establishment. It had its context in light of the condition of the African-American in the United States, Negro, colored, black American, African-American, whatever label you want to use in the evolution, what it, what it has sort of evolved into. And as a result of that, um, uh, W.D. Muhammad leads this mass conversion where we have a network of mosques in every U.S. city small town America, over a network of 300 mosques, the oldest Muslim Islamic school system, the Claire Muhammad School, named after Elijah Muhammad's wife. And it was a private school. It's still running to this day throughout various places throughout the United States. And they were able to say, we embrace Islam. We embrace patriotism. We embrace citizenship. We, we reject uh, these viewpoints that in some shape or fashion African-American or black man is, 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 is supreme over others. They embrace the prophetic hadith of that the love of faith is part of country. And I think this radical transformation for individuals who had been oppressed, that have been subjugated, that were affected by uh, structural racism and then shifting their viewpoints, radically shifting in and, and leading hundreds of thousands of individuals into being productive members of society to say, guess what? Be part of the American establishment. Be judges and doctors and lawyers and be cab drivers and be part of this mainstream was a radical transformation. And I think W.D. Muhammad will be credited, and I've always, I call him sort of the patron saint of American Islam because of his radical uh, viewpoints and all, the radical transformation and radical viewpoints to reject his father's teachings and then also to integrate its members um, in a way where they also encourage interfaith dialogue all over the world where he was able to give invocation at the Senate and the House um, in, in Congress and at the Senate um, to be able to engage with his Catholic counterparts, his intra-Muslim counterparts and do it in a fashion on his own terms and say we are both American and Muslim at a time when we know, um, you know, to speak up in that sort of fashion, particularly in the American Muslim community and broader Muslim world, wasn't always the most uh, cool thing to do. And I think that W.D. Muhammad's sort of transformation is, is, is monumental in that respect. I'm assuming there must have been a lot of uh, Sunni assistance, quote-unquote, for yeah. him to make this uh, transition. Would that would that be fair to say? Yeah, so, I, I, I you know, Imam W.D. Muhammad, as a young boy, as his, uh, people in some shape or fashion assume that those who were part of the Nation of Islam weren't trained in Islamic um, principles. Um, Imam W.D. Muhammad, his first Arabic teachers were, um, were from the Middle East. Um, his father put advertisements in uh, various newspapers in Chicago 
one of his teachers was an individual by the name of Jamil Diab, who was a Palestinian, who taught him Arabic um, and taught him the rules of grammar and conversational Arabic, along with many of his um, other counterparts, including Imam Darnell Karim, who still is alive, along with his daughter, excuse me, his wife, Gloria Karim, and many others. Um, and so they were, were, were trained in this sort of, um, they learned sort of classical Islam. And I think part of that might have been part of what we see Imam Muhammad's sort of slow sort of pushback um, against some of the uh, uh, some other viewpoints of his father. I mean, I think some of the interaction, to get to your point on um, Sunni communities, um, if, if, if I'm sorry, you were saying something about... Like assistance. I mean, yeah. he, he must so, have had like an influence, some yeah. sort of Sunni influence. So, yeah, yeah. And so I think that yeah, those those individuals brought that. And I think also he was a student of religion. And I think he was also a student of history. So he was he was a prolific reader and was exposed to these different communities. And I think on many occasions, there, you know, the, the community of the Nation of Islam and what he, W.D. Muhammad, would inherit were very much... Um, interacting loosely with other Muslim communities that were in the United States. If you go, some of the oldest Muslim communities were, you know, the, the legacy of um, people from the Middle East, from the Levant, um, Lebanon, and Syria, and we have Albanian Muslim communities. So their interaction at times were, were very much made him and some of the community members reflect. This isn't the way that we're used to. What you're saying is not part of traditional Islam, and I think that he was mindful of that as well. So I think that assistance was certainly there, and it made him certainly um, usher in mass uh, reform techniques or efforts. And um, and then certainly some of the teachers that had passed through the Nation of Islam were certainly, um, I think, they, they rubbed off on Imam Muhammad quite, uh, quite a lot too as well. Now, I know when we've talked about this in the past, you've always indicated that this background is a tremendous strength for you, you yeah. know, personally and an asset, which of course, I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. What, from that perspective, I'm almost embarrassed to ask the question, but what mm-hmm. is the big difference you see between that narrative that you just mentioned and this this history and the quote-unquote immigrant Muslim mm-hmm. American establishment? I mean, without yeah. it's not about sure. getting into names, sure. but there, there are clearly, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. there's a big gap. Yeah, big gap. So, you know, for me, as growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, um, as a descendant of, of really, it's quite interesting. I'm a, my mother is a descendant of the Gullah Geechee, which is essentially African re- culture and tradition still preserved in the Sea Islands of South Carolina and Georgia. And there is certainly some patterns and traditions that, um, from our research, clearly has some Muslim um, influences. Um, Gullah is a culture, Geechee is a language, so it's basically African um, Creole that's spoken from Sierra Leone in West Africa, and then English fused into one. So our food patterns, our language, is very much preserved, which is very interesting. But so as a young child, I grew up um, as a Muslim. Um, I have my family are Muslim. My um, my cousins and aunts, um, uncles who are Muslim. Um, I went to and learned. Uh, Quranic Arabic like you would learn anywhere in a known Islamic world. Um, and so because of that, the community of Imam Muhammad, at least from where I grew up in, it was a big emphasis to, Imam Muhammad used to always say, that you should study Islamic history, study the rise and fall of Islamic civilization, and study your circumstances in the United States. 
And that sort of three-prong approach, I think, for me has been very enriching because for me, I was able to master the traditions, and it's a it's a constantly sort of ilma raja, the, the art of reviewing. It's mm-hmm. constantly reviewing, and because otherwise, you, if you don't study it, you don't review it, you lose it. But as a young child, the emphasis was study the tradition so that you understand and that you are able to converse with the broader Islamic world. Because if you're not able to do that, then you are disconnecting yourself from a body of knowledge. Now, there are communities, I think, throughout the United States that come from the Imam Muhammad community that have encouraged that. But to the, to the level of implementation, it will vary. Um, I think different individuals, different communities have different levels of expertise and the encouragement of that as well. So I think that's important to be fair and to be honest about that. Um, but also, I think that the, the community has made it a strong point to preserve and to make sure that their identity to be both American and Muslim is paramount to their success that, that I think so often when individuals studied overseas, for example, myself, I studied in Senegal, Mali, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and the Gambia. When I studied there, my parents gave me the instruction to study. They said, go study there. And this is in a West African context, so I'm African-American. Um, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going back home to West Africa. But when my parents, t- when I left, they said, study, learn, but do not become and take on the traditions there where you lose yourself. Mm, and I thought that was really powerful because they were essentially saying, go there, study, master what you've learned. And then what I kind of add to it is it's like jazz music. You master something, you have to master it classical music you have to master how uh, the notes are to be used when you are reading sheet music mm. but once you've mastered that sheet music then you can go into improvisation not to reject the what you've learned but based on what you've but learned. based on what yeah. you've learned and so that was something that was encouraged in me as a young child as a young boy that my teachers uh, when I used to go to Arabic school who were Egyptians who were Pakistani who were Senegalese um, and I think that that's always stayed with me my whole life. And I think that, and so, but, but what the community has always done is all, has been making sure that their identity is preserved. And I think that's important. Um, and so when you go and you go to a masjid, let's go into the weeds. When you go into the masjid of these communities, it's a, and I've had friends who are saying, oh, I, this feels very familiar, but um, maybe at times some of the rituals might, look very Hanafi in its approach, but then another aspect might be Shafi mm. or Maliki. And I think that Imam Muhammad borrowed from a, was this, this sort of recognition that none of the schools of thought, none of the madhahibs were, in his context, they, that, that they came, I should say, in sort of a time-space context, that these were a result, these imams that have come in the past were a result of the reality of, the, of their geographic location just as much as the Shi traditions as well. The Jafari school of thought are a result of the reality being in, in this case, Iran. Let's just use that. And so it was never rejecting any of this. If anything, understanding and knowing these traditions, but recognizing that um, the requirement to follow strictly, blindly, was, in his idea, not necessarily a requirement. And so you'll see some of the influences, whether it's the janazah prayers that are performed or whether it is for Juma, that there is some variations and in influences. Even the language, too, as well, using softer language for individuals who 
would become converts or reverts. Instead of saying the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu oftentimes Imam Muhammad would say, let's say the life example of Muhammad the Prophet, because these individuals who we're interacting with, when we say sunnah, what does that mean? Mm. Um, it, it becomes sort of a, 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 just a mass labeling rather than, what is the life example? What is his uswa? What is his, what is his example of how he lived his life? It's just softer, more palatable language to, to help individuals. So. I think that you know the um, that's important to recognize because the community borrows from many of these traditions, but also very much firmly rooted in Islamic tradition. And lastly, I'll say, and I went to Juma prayer last week at one of the associations of the Imam Muhammad in Baltimore. And you also have to realize that many of the communities, whether they're third, they're fourth generation, or individuals who are newly converts, there are institutions that have been established. So if you go to Friday prayers, the, the African-American experience, regardless whether it's Muslim or Christian, is one rooted in um, a call and response tradition. Yes, yes. So the call and response tradition is one of affirmation of after you say something. If you go to a black church, it is saying something and people want to hear in colloquial expression, a joyful noise, a response mm -hmm. of, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes, yeah. ma'am, I hear you. <laughs> Teach, preach. Yeah. And so people are not outside of that context. And the African-American Muslim community, is, and, and particularly Imam Muhammad community, have, have, have built upon that and not rejected those as well. To say, if you go to a Friday prayer, you might hear someone who might express themselves. It, it would be no different than someone going to an Ahl al-Sunnah wa Jamat mosque, or a, what is a, a Sufi mosque, if you will, who has heard the the expression of the divine and they are um overtaken a bit mm. by that expression and they want to testify or exult mm. give a takbir in response to that and so i think that the african-american community muslim community has has been able to has been negotiating through that space and struggled because america is the most diverse place on the planet earth and because you have this diversity, um, you also have different interpretations and people expressing whether this is right or not. And I think the American Muslim community is finally recognizing, and I'll, be I'll finally be comfortable to say this, I think we are finally getting to a point where we are establishing, whether we want to call it or not, but I think we might need to say this, an American school of Islamic thinking, an Islam mm -hmm. American school of Islamic thought. So it seems that uh, the Warthin Muhammad community I mean, just to be very blunt, is is more educated and sophisticated than the immigrant community. If the basis of of it's like a twin approach, one is maintaining our identity as African Americans, but also number two, being grounded in traditional Islamic sciences. I mean, when I wanted to go study in yeah. Egypt, you know, my community thought I was insane mm. because I actually left medical school to do that. Mm. So, like, why do you want to go do that? That's what poor people do. Yeah. You know, only poor people go to the you know seminary or to <laughs> the mosque. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, that's right there. I can see where there's a difference. Sure. But you mentioned West Africa, and I think that one of the interesting things, uh, I want to get into extremism in a little mm -hmm. bit, but one of the interesting things about West Africa is the proliferation of tasawwuf, mm -hmm. which is sort of you know embedded with part of mm -hmm. West African Islam. Is it also fair to say that tasawwuf is also important to the, to the community you come from and growing up, it was sort of just part of the ambiance? Yeah, so, you know, I was just looking at one of these books because I was just thinking about, you know, in, in West Africa, uh, I'm just going to read a few names that might be familiar with. The Qawaid al-Salah, the Muqtasar al-Aqdari, 
the Al Ashmawiya, the Manzuma Al Qutubi Fil Ibadat, Al Muqaddima Al Iza, etc. Al Risala. These are very, you're, you're familiar with those, yeah, yeah, right? Sure, sure. This is what is part of what I call the West African Islamic curriculum. Okay. So this is a. You're very familiar. This is what's taught in many of these institutions. And Islamic intellectual learning, I've argued, was just as equal as Islamic centers of learning in the Arab world, uh, where individuals were studying these texts, and then they were also um, able to offer their own commentary. So, you know, the the, the African-American Muslim community, you would think, um, would have inherited many of these texts. Now, we, we, I mentioned earlier just a few examples of those names who we know, Bilali Ali, Sali Bilali, just two additional names, who through historical records we have found them leaving their legacy. Omar ibn Said was able to write uh, in his Al-Hayat, the book, uh, the life of his autobiography, um, in Arabic. So he had memorized Arabic, which was probably his fourth, fifth language. And he was able to bring that language, bring those traditions to the new world, hmm. despite the transatlantic Middle Passage journey. So one would say, hey, Muhammad, did you have all that traditions and were you able to memorize the Risala? Did that, was that chain of transmission uh, all the way sort of continued from West Africa to America? And as Dr. Yang and other professors have argued, that gap was cut off. So what happens when those traditions are cut off and you no longer have that, that continuity of knowledge? And this is why these sort of Islamic hybrid methodologies were developed. Mm. And, um, and unfortunately, those traditions were lost. Um, and so you have elements of, and this is getting to the role of Sufism too as well, you have the roles of, for example, I just happened to be in Charleston, South Carolina, where the first shots of the Civil War were fired, the Gullah Geechee traditions were preserved, and we know and doing sort of analysis, it looks like some of the practices were certainly uh, Islamic at best or African traditional religion. And we're all still trying to put this together as any good researcher trying to put together the, the pieces and the puzzles. Um, as a child, I happened to live near a sheikh who was from Senegal. And so as a young child, I was able to study from some of those texts that you referenced. Wow. Wow. But that, and I don't know if that's a coincidence that he happened to come there to Charleston and I was introduced to the, uh, not just to the, to the influence of Tasawwuf, but I was exposed to it and I was able to understand it. And it was, it, it seemed like, um, and so that, that was a good thing for me. And then I studied in West Africa. So I think the role of Tasawwuf, the role of Sufism in a West African context is, is part and parcel of the West African experience. Um, and we see some of the, the, the thriving influence of the Qadariya and some of their offshoots groups, the Tijaniya, very much vibrant in their transnational networks mm. throughout West Africa and the larger di diaspora. Um, and, and many African-Americans have taken uh, bayat with various tariqas in the United States who have West African lineage. And many of them have joined them because I think they are looking for spirituality, for peace. They're looking for a, a way to connect back to their ancestral legacy too as well. Some of it might be real. Some of it might be um, imagined because, as you know, the African-American experience, many of us, through Ancestry.com and 23andMe, 
you know, it's my ancestry is all over the place. Somali Bantu to uh, Togo Benin to Scandinavia to um, and it's a hodgepodge and it's a result of the the experiment in America and, and through marriages, through forced rape, unfortunately, through um, just the complex story of what we know the creation of the African-American and what that means too as well. Speaking of ancestry, did you have any ancestors that fought in the Civil War that you know of? Um, you know, I haven't traced that, that route. I would imagine because I grew up in Charleston that we that there's definitely family. My, my mom's family name, is maiden's name, was Hamilton, um, which is basically an old uh, slaveholder's holder, sure, name. Yeah. Um, and my father's uh, last name, you'll see the Fraser, is part of that too as well, which is up in Georgetown. Um, but you know, even my my parents uh, and my family too as well, keeping the name is Muhammad Fraser Rahim. They kept that Fraser in there to show a connection mm. prior to their conversion. Full name is Muhammad Fraser Abdurrahim. But they were like, hey, we're not Arabs. We're not. We're not Africans. We're we're not. South Asian. We want to tell that story so that you can always be able to to tell individuals that, and I think that's important too as well. It gives a, it, it doesn't reject any of the Islamic ideas of who we are, but it really kind of tells the story of how Islam has taken roots in America and how sure. it it made its way um, into the the American context. I ask because from time to time, this is a total tangent, but yeah. from time to time, I meet. Uh, American Muslims mm -hmm. that can trace their families back to either the Civil War, uh, fighting for the Union or the Confederacy, mm -hmm. or actually in some cases back to the American Revolution. Mm. And I always encourage them, well, you know, are you a you know daughter of the American Revolution or son of the American mm -hmm. Revolution? Because th I think that's kind of cool yeah. that in those organizations you have Muslims, mm -hmm. you know, that can trace their lineage all the way back mm -hmm. and be like, you know, we are from the founding Mm -hmm. You know, family. I just think that's like, like a cool I, thing. Now, now you've made me think I need to actually do that. Uh, so I, you know, that's a, an investigatory investigatory effort. I probably should look at. And there's a, it's a Muslim thing too to sure. be obsessed with lineage. Yeah, you know, where sure. we come from and what's stuff. the sidsala, right? Yeah, the but I think it's 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 very interesting. It shows the diversity of the country. Absolutely. Uh, you have Muslims that can trace their families back that yeah. far. I mean, that's that's that says something about the diversity. Absolutely. Uh, just to pivot, another. Uh, aspect that I know of you that I would love you know to get your thoughts on is uh, for the longest time mm -hmm. you've worked in the US government mm -hmm. and you're familiar with that and I too I mean I'm not a government employee but I uh, you know I brush up against different mm -hmm. government agencies mm -hmm. and intelligence agencies mm -hmm. in, in this country mm -hmm. and elsewhere uh, and you know some of our work w has involved uh, with those with those type of uh, government people um, but I think it's important for people listening to hear from somebody who's a you know practicing Muslim, mm -hmm. you know, somebody that's obviously well, well versed in Islam. What is it like to work in the mm -hmm. government? In the Muslim world, it's almost normal. You know, mm -hmm. you go to like a mosque or you go to um, a ziyara or something. Yeah. You know, next to you will be like a minister or yeah. you know a general, and yeah. that's like very normal. Yeah. Yeah. But for some reason, when, when we come to the American context, it's like, oh, you're Muslim mm -hmm. and you're in the, in the government. That's mm -hmm. kind of weird. Um, so I'd love for you to, mm -hmm. to talk a, a little bit about that uh, that experience mm -hmm. and sort of your personal you know yeah. take on that. So that's a really good question. You know, I was a young college student uh, at the College of Charleston, and I was initially thinking I was going to become a diplomat at State Department. Uh, that was my track. And at the time, I was studying in Egypt. I was finishing up my uh, master's, um, and I was studying in Egypt. Um, with my ex-wife and I remember 
studying there, um, polishing up my Arabic, and at the American University in Cairo. And um, when I was I was I was considering that, and somehow I got a, a request from someone, probably a professor, who said, "Hey, you should consider working for um, the intelligence community." And the first request was via NSA, National Security Agency, to be an Arabic linguist. To um, and I was initially very hesitant because the only context I had was what I saw on TV. I wouldn't say it was like something that I was considering not something I didn't want to do. Um, my father uh, is a Vietnam veteran too, as well. Worked for the U.S. government um, as an environmental engineer, hard sciences, physics background, et cetera. I'm undergrad and master's in that field. And uh, and I just was, I just really didn't have much of a reference. To make a long story short, I then got another request to become a case officer um, for a couple of the uh, uh, agencies um, out there. And I, again, was like, what should I do? Speed up a very kind of interesting process. I decided I was going to, I decided I was going to do this. And my first job was working at the Department of Homeland Security, um, working border security issues, working as an analyst, um, which was interesting, um, working homeland issues, working uh, not just, it wasn't necessarily Muslim issues, it was working security as a whole. And I was the only Muslim in this organization. Um, I was utilizing my, uh, uh, how, do we, how do we deal with issues of um, um, individuals who are coming into the U.S. and understanding how to protect the homeland. Um, uh, I did that, and then um, I was at a conference, and then I got picked up to work for the Director of National Intelligence. So this is the in, this is a newly founded agency. Um, this is roughly about 2005, um, and I uh, worked for the DNI. Um, he oversees the entire intelligence community, a small group of analysts. So the name of the agency is the Director? Office, Office, Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Okay. And I worked at the National Counterterrorism Center. So I spent my career, the bulk of my career, uh, working as an analyst for the Director of National Intelligence at the National Counterterrorism Center, the premier, premier agency that handles all issues, the clearinghouse for counterterrorism issues for the U.S. I worked as a counter-radicalization expert, um, on counterterrorism, um, both dealing with issues domestically, overseas, dealing with issues of Islamic thought. So all these good skills that I had learned, studied, um, uh, total sort of uh, in the weeds, nerdy, uh, spending time, um, long hours, and in, 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 in really as any Islamic student does. And it was finally being applied. And I worked... Um, worked in an organization, a, a particular shop called the Radicalization Extremist Messages Group. And we dealt with how do you combat extremist, extremist thought and how do we provide analysis. My customer was primarily the White House and the National Security Council. So I wrote, co-wrote presidential daily briefs and strategic assessments for U.S. government, Congress, um, foreign partners, um, and provided key analysis for them, strategic assessments, and briefed. Um, that allowed me to be able to travel the world, and uh, I spent extensive time throughout various places in the Middle East and Africa, and worked um, in in our in our U.S. embassies providing support for that. Now that experience really impacted me because as a 
really I kind of it was sort of a trailblazer and there were other there were other Muslims who were there not many other Muslims who I interacted with and it was not a lot of blueprint there wasn't a big blueprint of like what do I do <laughs> so you're dealing with very high stress very sensitive matters for the US government you are in working and your expertise being relied being asked upon um, and providing context toward when bad people extremists who do activities who are using religious holidays as a means to invoke violence and being con and and sitting there and going through religious texts and being able to you know on my desk um, going through the Quran and Hadith and understanding and, and matching that up with good tradecraft that I learned as an analyst and to, and, to, and to provide analysis that's balanced and nuanced and surgical and concise to be able to inform policymakers who are trying to protect the nation. That protection of the nation isn't just for Christians, it's for fellow Muslims who are to be killed by extremist activity. As we know, the vast majority of those who've been killed by extremist activity have been moderate, if you will, mainstream, normative Muslims who are just trying to live their life. Sure. So I've written hundreds of analytical products that are now, that, you know, that are in government um, um, uh, uh, troves or government um, um, uh, platforms in terms of providing analysis for them. It was, it was, a, it was a, I was a young person. I was young. I mean, I've been out of government for three years now, a little under three years. Um, and I learned it, it really challenged me on a deeply personal, spiritual, emotional level of how I'm providing information um, and doing it in a way where it is keeping in mind my religious obligation, but also very much thinking through my context uh, as an American Muslim too as well and th what that meant. And I, I think that people also, oftentimes American Muslim, just broader Muslim community, you know, the, 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 the prophet himself had his own form of security services. I think it was Hudayfa ibn Yaman, who was what I would consider the first director of national intelligence. I like that. I like where this and, is going. And, and, I, and I, think, I think this is important, that the security is paramount for all Muslims. Um, and so, you know, I can't help but, uh, this historian mind to bring those references up and go back to our tradition to understand how it's so vital. The masjid I grew up with, there was always security. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just everyone... Maybe to protect the To mosque? protect the mosque. Mm. Everyone's not just going to be able to pray. You have people who are on rotation. We know that the Prophet taught us this, right? Mm. The camels, you're out in the desert, mm. and there's a, someone's out there who's looking around to make sure that someone's not um, ambushing our Prophet Muhammad. So I think that as a young child, I'm used to the security and that there was always someone who was around and checking on others. And mm -hmm. I think that that consciousness has always been part of me to as well to serve, which is certainly part of our tradition, um, and also be able to protect. Um, and I think that my also African-American experience also shaped me too as well tremendously. Uh, I'll add this, and maybe this gets to something that might come up to as well. You know, as an African-American, my my responsibility, first and foremost, it is to protect all people, regardless of religion. Um, it is making sure that people are safe and people are treated well. That's the way of our, uh, it is the way of our prophet. It is the way of, of the scholars of the past. 
And so when I hear that, um, I'm also uh, mindful of that in our many of our African-American communities, uh, there is the reality of making sure that there is self-policing that's taking place too as well. Because unfortunately, the um, if you just do the statistics of the amount of African-American males who are incarcerated, um, it's just um, the proportions are just um, they're just out of the out of control, and as you also know, the issues of entrapment, which I might maybe I'm getting ahead of myself on that. Well, I do, but, before we yeah. go there, because we were going to go down. We'll that get route, into that. I wanted, I wanted to just ask you a quick question. It sounds like working in government, yeah. you got to, you know, use all the tools. Yes, you know? and absolutely. that's and I can totally geek yeah. out on that. Yeah. I see how yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, but. I wanted to ask you personally, did you ever feel, I mean, without obviously divulging mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. national security yeah. secrets or anything, yeah. like that, did you yeah. have any, like, you know, it was a crisis of faith uh, where you were, like, questioning what you were doing? If so, how did you get, you yeah. know, through that? Because yeah. I agree with you on the, the meta issue of, yeah. you know, defense of the homeland yeah. is a prophetic, you know, trait. Yeah. And the Prophet taught us that. Yeah. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, himself mm-hmm. loved his homeland mm-hmm. and loved Mecca and loved mm-hmm. Medina mm-hmm. and the companions that were in Abyssinia, you know, mm-hmm. they fought in defense mm-hmm. of Abyssinia mm-hmm. with the Najesh and all of that. Mm-hmm. So th- that's very easy sure. for me to understand yeah. rationally. Yeah. But what is it like to do it? You know, that you're writing this brief for the White House and you're the only Muslim and, yeah. you know, people are like, what is this? And how did you surmount those for people listening? You know, what are the tools that they can have to surmount those type of issues? Well, you know, I think luckily I've had good counterparts who were Muslim, who were Christian, who were Jewish, who were agnostic, who were atheists, who were... Uh, the full re- full expression of the human experience. And, you know, I want to be very clear that the work that I did was not just on extremism that happened to be perpetrated by individuals who claim to be Muslim. I also dealt with other forms of extremism um, that weren't just dealing with Islamists who have an agenda. Um, so I've worked the, the gamut um, domestically and overseas. Um, so that, I think that's important to relate to. I think as... I, I sh- I've had moments in my early career where I um, would hear the noise, if you will, of the arguments of some people saying, why would Muslims work in the U.S. government? Why would you engage in these issues that might be impacting the lives of your other Muslims? And I think for me, um, I was able to reconcile this because I also realized that there I'm protecting and securing my country of birth. And the uh, and in any community, there are government actions that are constantly being evaluated and that can be done better. And I think that you know the the example of the uh, the the invasion in, in Iraq and certainly not finding any um, yellow cake too as well. And there's a whole conversation just on that with George Bush as it relates to that is an example of that. And I think there's been some radical reforms that have taken place. Um, on that. So I think that any sort of government and pick any place in the Muslim world and you'll probably see a very similar issue and probably lack of transparency on those issues, on those topics too as well. Um, so I think that for me, I recognize that this work had to be done and I was fascinated by the issues of security. And if not me, then who? Um, and I think that as, as I engage in this conversation, I also recognize that being there, I was also at the table. I was able to be... Um, I was not being served on the table, but I was assisting on what was going to be on the menu. Mm-hmm. And I think that being on the, being part of that converse, 
being part of the conversation and be able to wrestle through these topics and be able to provide pushback and to be able to offer different viewpoints allowed for policymakers, key government officials in the United States to have a perspective that they might not be able to get from someone else. And I think for that, I was able to go through that assisted tremendously. Also, my parents, my parents were excellent advisors and mentors and spiritual uh, efforts. My community was able to give me some good um, efforts. My, my spiritual practice that I stayed vigilant every single day. The, I think it was Sayyidina Ali that said, Oh Allah, do not leave me to my ego for a blink of an eye, a blink of a second. And that was a level of vigilance mm. that I think I kept and I keep all the time. You know, right here, you know, I keep my tasbih with me. Sometimes I just use my hands because I think those are important for reflection. So it sounds like it helped you actually this position. Yeah, absolutely. Islamically, uh, Islamically, it wasn't a challenge. You know, it was. It was. I had moments stressed for sure, but I was able to fall back on the techniques that I had learned mm. as a child. And when those stressful moments came, sometimes they were more stressful than others. And I had moments where it wasn't easy at all, um, working very important topics. Um, but I was able to kind of find my balance. And I think I, I encourage people to work in government. I think it, it is a powerful experience. It changed my life uh, for the better. Um, and I learned a lot from that experience. And I, and I encourage people too as well is that, you know, it, it gets you out your comfort zone too as well. If you're around everyone that says the same thing, I mean, you're not pushed um, and you're not challenged on your points and views, then you're not able to grow in a meaningful way. So that experience impacted me tremendously. So extremism. Yes. This is where, how we both met mm -hmm. uh, in dealing with this issue. And of course, me very naively thinking that I'm, you know, also doing the, you know, the, the good work and to realize that I just stepped on a hornet's nest and yeah, to see this huge, <laughs> you know, this huge, mm -hmm. you know, backlash in the Muslim community, mm -hmm. CVE and mm -hmm. all of these things. I'm mm -hmm. like, what, you know, for me, CVE w was, you know, yeah. telling people in the mosque, you know, mm -hmm. what true Islam is yeah. and all the things that we've been talking about, I had no idea yeah. about the association, yeah. about these terms and, mm -hmm. and things like that. So, I mean, this could be its own conversation, yeah. so let's not get sure. too far off topic, but, you know, maybe you can help people listening and help me understand, you know, where the threat is. Uh, we've done some work in Africa together, mm -hmm. so we definitely understand, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the context of Nigeria, Somalia, yeah. uh, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, all of that. Uh, of course, ISIS mm -hmm. goes without saying. You know, those are those are serious mm -hmm. threats, but th there's like this percolating uh, radicalization mm -hmm. that no one's really dealing with. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm concerned mm -hmm. with. I'm concerned with like little kids in the mosque, mm -hmm. you know, young adults mm -hmm. that have questions that mm -hmm. no one's answering. Mm -hmm. And I see them using phrases that are not quote unquote orthodox Sunni phrases. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, let me stop you right mm -hmm. there. Let mm -hmm. me let me reformat mm -hmm. you know your mm -hmm. head mm -hmm. so you so you I can send you off with yeah. the right you know format. But how? Is it a problem? Yeah. How big of a problem? And w what does it mean for people like us that are trying to engage in prevention work? Mm -hmm. What does it that mean? What are we trying to do? So I would say that um, there's an interesting report that came out about two years ago uh, by the UNDP called In and Out of Extremism. Um, and it basically canvassed um, hundreds of individuals in why, particularly on the African continent, why they joined extremist movements. And particularly this case, um, groups like Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, AQRM, et cetera. And one of the things they said was that they were able to do the analysis on it is that 57 of the respondents said that they 
had little to no understanding of religion. Mm. Um, I will say that the, the, and we've done a postmortem on individuals who carried out the attack in Belgium, Molenbeek, and many of these individuals and others throughout the world had very little understanding of what Islam was. The attacker of the Pulse nightclub down in Florida was probably someone who was dealing with internal guilt and likely was, um, uh, he was gay. And he probably was struggling through that. And so we see now that he claimed to have been a member of ISIS. And he may have been working through some internal demons of his own personal sort of struggle. I just use that to say that, you know, the level of religious understanding is minimal um, it, from what we have seen. And having been engaged in this space, I've traveled all over. I have interviewed former extremists. I work with former extremists right now. I know this topic very well. Um, quite comfortable in engaging on what this means. Um, I think that the radicalization is still a problem. It's metastasizing, it's growing and morphing into something else. When I started off, it was Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda was like, and I say this all the time, but it was like BlackBerry, iPhone is, or excuse me, uh, ISIS <laughs> is iPhone. Um, what comes next, we will see. It will become something. It might be a millennial, mipster, hipster, something that is that's nefarious, that's negative, that's trying to, attack us and so i think the radi- the radicalization experience one is personal it will not look the same i've seen from white kids to latino to african-american to uh south asian to arab etc um i think ideology is not everything but ideology does play a role let's be quite frank the the and this is something i think the muslim community has to address the there is a struggle. There is a war going on within Islam. I'm moving beyond the cliche. At Davos, Switzerland this past year, King Abdullah of Jordan said that there is a civil war going on within Islam. Abi Ahmed, the president, prime minister of Ethiopia, a Christian one, said recently that um, he does not need someone from outside telling his Ethiopian Muslims what it means to be Muslim. I mean, uh, they've been Muslims since the first generation. Exactly, first generation. <laughs> and he was saying that because he saw that there was radicalization by individuals who want to bring an interpretation of Islam. And he's mm. like, no, we need, to be Europe, we need to be Ethiopian Muslims that s- supports interfaith dialogue, that works with side by side, that we respect our Ethiopian heritage and we share injera together and we have dorawat and foods are very mm. Ethiopian in its context. And as you mentioned, part of the first generation of the early Muslim companions in that a Christian king protected us. So um, I think radicalization is still a concern. It's evolving, and it is one in which um, post-ISIS, we now have um, individuals who are looking for new techniques for the recruitment. It's online? Absolutely. Is it still personal? Yes. Are people going under the radar? Absolutely. Um, And so each country is trying to find a way of how to respond best. We've moved beyond just sort of the, the uh, I would characterize, the global caliphate. That's already been achieved. We're also going to what might become a sort of l- local insurgency. Local insurgency addresses local issues. Um, so, you know, you have individuals who have grievances against, you know, American nations, the American government, and they might be homegrown. How do they respond to that? 
um, in Trinidad and Tobago, if you're in Egypt, uh, if you're in Jordan, whatever country of the world, people have concerns. And I think that we just have to find creative means to respond. American Muslims in particular have to realize there is a concern. To say that it, it has everything to do with Islam is false. To say that it has nothing to do with Islam is false. There's something going on. Maybe it's the, the articulations of how we are practicing our Islamic faith. Or maybe there is grievances that have not been addressed. Extremist groups are very much correct in one thing, that they are able to exploit legitimate grievances. There are some legitimate grievances that they offer. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think that they are able to exploit those and do it in a way where they also make them attractive. So just as much as that, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier, that within black communities that we have to deal with, unfortunately, black-on-black -black crime, and it has a whole context and historical one, and I work on that, and I support it, I'm on the board, and I'm in communities, working hard by side-by-side side and working to address this. That is a problem. I can't ignore that. It has to be addressed. I had a cousin who was shot 19 times in the chest, not mm. by someone from somewhere else. He was shot by another African-American male who, in my cousin's context, did not have to work, did not have to do that, but it was based over a small issue and a drug over some, some, some drugs. So the same thing I say within the American Muslim communities that we have to make sure that we do our part to address this concern and this issue so as to make sure that this is not um, an epidemic too as well. Um, I think American Muslims, Muslim communities are doing some good work, but we can do more. Just as much as I mentioned the same thing within sort of my broader African-American community. And I think that is a balanced, nuanced fashion to, to address these issues. That We're not running away from them and we're not avoiding them, but we're hitting them head on to confront the reality. And then we can find hopefully a solution. It's a global issue. Um, and, the, and the way we respond to it in the United States is going to be very different than how you respond in, in wherever you are throughout the world. But radicalization is, I think, is certainly metastasizing. It's growing. Now we have the growing issue of domestic terrorism and ethno-nationalists who are white and neo-Nazis. And if you just go read through some of the criminal complaints of these individuals, they've learned from what ISIS and Al-Qaeda and some of these other groups have done. And they have adjusted and they have recognized that they need to change their techniques and their tactics and procedures, as we say in this space, uh, their TTPs. So... Um, I, I would say that... Um, What's a TTP? Uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good segue into your current work mm -hmm. that I want you to, to talk about. I know that you've recently uh, taken up this new position with Quilliam uh, in the North America, yeah. uh, even though Quilliam is based in the UK. Uh, and before I, you share, you know, I want you to share about what you're doing. It's very exciting. I do want to, you know, address the... The big issue mm -hmm. when it comes to Quilliam mm -hmm. for, for Muslims, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, some of the things that that one of the founders, Majid, you know, Nawaz has said and and uh, publicly. And I do want to preface before I ask you to comment, I do want to preface that I I think it's very unfortunate that we don't have we're losing a lot of civility mm -hmm. between us as a community. Mm -hmm. I mean. There are a lot of people that have a lot of weird ideas mm -hmm. uh, within any given mm -hmm. group of people, mm -hmm. but if we if we believe that we're all Muslim, if we're, if we're you know connected in this faith, I think the basic level of civility. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the basic mm -hmm. prophetic model mm -hmm. is that we wouldn't, you know, curse. I mean, I've seen people use his name as mm -hmm. a curse word, mm -hmm. and I and I find that offensive because yeah. I don't think that that's fair. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I also think that some of the things that he said bother me and disturb me, but rather than curse him, I just want to ask him, like, what do you mean by mm-hmm. that? And mm-hmm. maybe there's another way of looking mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. And can I, can we find a better way of expressing mm-hmm. it if we want to help? Mm-hmm. So given your background, mm-hmm. your education, mm-hmm. you know, African-American identity, mm-hmm. the war theme, Muhammad, everything mm-hmm. we talked mm-hmm. about, studying in the Muslim world, West Africa, Egypt, etc. How did you come to overcome those challenges mm-hmm. you know some of the things that Majid has said and and I also want to give you a, a small little mm-hmm. anecdote when Quilliam first formed mm-hmm. I was in Egypt I was working in the office of the Grand Mufti and mm-hmm. they reached out to us mm-hmm. and and at that time the Grand Mufti uh, Dr. Ali Gomar he was identified by Quilliam as maybe one of the people that they could work with mm-hmm. and I had no idea what mm-hmm. I mean I was just mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. shuffling papers mm-hmm. I didn't really know what mm-hmm. this organization was so I asked my British Muslim mm-hmm. friends I'm like, oh, you have to stay away from Quilliam. Mm-hmm. They work at the government, with the mm-hmm. government. I'm like, but doesn't that mean, that, because as, yeah. as my training, I'm like, well, that means they must be okay because yeah. Yeah. I don't want to work with a rogue mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. No, 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 stay away, stay away. And at the time, it was Ed Hussein who, mm-hmm. who reached out. Yeah. And then Ed came to Cairo, and I was like apprehensive to meet him. The first thing he said when, he, when I met him, he's like, I want to go do Ziyarat. Can you take me to Sayyidina Hussein? I was like, Ashallah. what? So we went <laughs> to Sayyidina Hussein. Yeah. We went to Ibn Atta, Alaska. Yeah. We had an yeah. awesome time. Beautiful, yeah. And I was like, you see, this is the problem yeah. with these stereotypes yeah. is that it, it becomes a facade that you can't. And, mm. and we got along yeah. very well. We didn't end up working mm. with them for logistical mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. But I want you to, to and I yeah. know Ed has moved on. Yeah, he's moved on. Uh, but now with Majid, I, I'd like you to, and if Majid, if you're listening, I'm, I'm trying to be very respectful sure. and constructive sure. within within the frame of, yeah. of the of the podcast, sure. and hopefully one day we can sit and, and yeah. talk as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, this goes back to one, the Pew Data poll that came out last year that said American Muslims are ideologically diverse. They are multi-ethnic. Um, I think I joined Quilliam. I used to write about Quilliam when I was in government. And, you know, because I've come from a security background, I've seen and I've written on so many different topics. Um, And I've seen so many different angles. And so Quilliam, I think, uh, is an organization that is working on counter-extremism. It's the work I've been doing my whole professional career. Um, I teach also at, a, uh, at, a, at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina as a professor. So, you know, I've seen this from a practitioner, from government, from um, sort of, I don't, wouldn't label myself an activist per se, but if, yeah, you want to use that label a little bit, um, from um, security lens, I've seen it from many different angles. And I think, you know, the work of Quilliam has been, in, has been one of trying to address these real fundamental problems challenges and it is working with government there are there are many muslim communities that are out there no one represents all of islam no one not even african-americans even though i i I come from what i characterize as the indigenous muslim community that i think that many american muslims should defer to many african-american communities on certain topics i mean it's like when i come to when i go to egypt as a as the deferral, I'm going to follow the Imam, the Shayyuk, the Grand Mufti. I'm going to follow traditions of that land because I've gone to that nation. But I don't even claim to that should be done, right? Um, I think that we should learn from one another. And I think that also the American Muslim community has an opportunity to offer multiple different voices out there. Um, I think what we've done with, I think with Quilliam and particularly with Majid and, and some of the founders that helped set it up was really engaging in some of the tough conversation that many people run from um, and addressing the issue of the establishment, what I think is sort of a Western framing of what it means to be Muslim. 
that Western framing interacts with many different communities. Um, and that interaction with many different co communities requires nuance in how we dialogue with our counterparts in the West. Um, and I think, you know, Quilliam has been part of that, whether it's working on strategy and counterterrorism work, whether it's working at local communities, whether it's working on de-radicalization and rehabilitation or DDR, de-radicalization, demobilization, rehabilitation, whether it's working with artistic conversations of what it means to be Muslim. It's dealing with the all the existential matters of what American early Muslim communities have done. There's a wonderful book called The Art of Party Crashing in Iraq by Dr. Emily C. Love, and she talks about the experience of, you know, people assume, I, I use this analogy that, you know, the Abbasid period in Iraq, many Muslims assume, see, in Damascus too as well, with the Umayyad period, uh, when the Jizya tax was coming in, uh, the caliph facilitated and allowed a lot of expressions that in many societies we would consider really not Islamic. Uh, but when that, and, and that includes the, fr the extremes from someone who is an, you know, uh, hashish smoking, debaucherous uh, night worker or engaging in activity to someone who is, you know, engaging in deep religious understanding. And when that, those taxes were restricted, you know, a little bit more conservatism came in. Um, and, you know, to save sort of a very kind of in the weeds historical context, I think that there's a number of books that just will prove my point to that. And you can read up on that. So I think that the what, the work we've been doing with Quilliam is engaging in that conversation. Right. The internal ones that's tough, that's hard. The one that I have to deal with as an African-American and putting it out there and engaging in a, in a public intellectual conversation. And so I think some people have, you know, not enjoyed the maybe the approach that maybe um quilliam has engaged in that but i i encourage them to set up another organization and to kuntum qayra ummatan ukhrijat lilnas that you are the best community you were the best community you are in the tradition evolve for all mankind but also to compete to as well to show another viewpoint that you think that's out mm -hmm. there I personally think that we need to be engaged in security. We need to engage in art and culture and religion and politics and government and, 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 and music. Mm -hmm. um, Al-Farabi in his Kitab Al-Musika Al-Kabir, great book of music, he talks about the various states that maqams that music places you in. This is the great Al-Farabi. Why is he commenting about that, right? It has applications right in it. In, in I, I, so. I, I see the, j just to, let me just come in. I want to uh, uh, um, push the issue a little bit. I, I definitely agree we have to have the tough conversation, yeah. you know. But I think specifically with the issue of Majid, one of the problems is that I think sometimes people, whether it's correct or not, interpret yeah. him as anti-Muslim. Yeah. And I know that, he, you know, you recently won this big sure. case yeah. uh, with the Su Southern Poverty Law Center. Yeah which his name was, you know, removed yeah. as, as an Islamophobe. I don't think that he is, you know, anti-Muslim. Yeah. I think he's trying to have the conversation, but it sounds inflammatory. Yeah. Do you think that that gets in the way of you trying to do your work? Or? No, I, I think, I, mean, I agree. I think that, you know, he, um, I don't, I, I, I hear, and I think I hear your point, and I think that with the Southern Poverty Law Center victory is just an example of public apology by them and recognizing that the work that Quilliam has been doing has been actually promoting pluralism and inspiring change. I think that, you know, people have not 
appreciated the approach maybe of Majid based off of what they consider acceptable, uh, what I call acceptability of what they want a certain type of Muslim to be, mm. right? And I, um, I don't, I don't, I challenge that. I think even in, you know, before I came on with Quilliam, I think even my, the community I, I come from also is one that you accept people as they are. Um, if someone is a former, uh, if they're coming into the mosque with, uh, I, I use the, it, it sounds pretty funny, but if someone comes into the mosque, stiletto heels, short mini skirt, you have them come and you meet them at the level where they are and you embrace them and you expo- you, you also are, ex- you also show them what they need to do when they come into a sacred space, right? So it's not pushing away anyone. You're embracing them and meeting them where they are to get them up to the standards where they can reach their full potential. So I think, you know, Majid, I think his, his work that he's been doing has been at, is to engage in tough conversation. And the way he frames things might not be acceptable towards some individuals. But I think that they offer, you know, and a, a, and a perspective, a one perspective out of many perspectives that should be encouraged out there. And I think for me, um, coming from my experience, I think that that's needed more than ever. Um, and I think that also he, his work will, um, I think his work within, within this space is also one rooted in him being a former himself as a former extremist, um, and his experience of working in this space, having been tortured in, 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 in Egypt and his journey out of that experience as well. I can tell you from individuals that I'm working with in and out of extremism, that process is slow. It's a step-by-step process too as well. But I embrace, I embrace that, particularly the work that we're doing right now in the United States, um, the Quilliam as the brand, particularly um, we have been heavily focused on how do we deal with the security lens um, and really DDR, de-radicalization and rehabilitating. And the conversation of dealing with the intra-Muslim conversation, you can go through to our website and you'll see a number of reports and pieces that I put out there and my other colleagues too as well. Um, that's one aspect out of many other aspects that have to be done. If I am, in, and I'm going to be a bit firm on this, if I sat down and tried to debate in, with Muslims, my fellow Muslims on every single topic, I would not get anything done. No, I, I agree. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, you know, the days of sitting around the masjid and trying to debate on these points, I say, let's try to collaborate where we can. We might have fundamental disagreements on other matters, but we can also be civil. Um, you know, the tradition of futawa, uh, Javan Mardi, having some level of chivalry in our activity and respect and good character is vital. But I, I welcome disagreements and pushbacks on points. We should have those. I think... Um, the the Fukaha didn't agree on every p- topic, sure. and they still disagree. I mean, I've had my share of detractors, and I've exhausted you know miserable minutes yeah. responding, and I realized that there's just no utility. Yeah. I can't please everyone. I, I totally yeah. second that. What I what I will also add to as well, and final on this is that I think that you know the the labeling of sort of Islamophobic or anti-Muslim, particularly Quilliam the brand as an organization, or Majid as the individual, I think there's been enough. Um, victories in the public conversation to definitely prove that that's not only false but it's just it's 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 far from it 
And I think that the individuals who have, you know, labeled this accusation, um, you know, publicly through the settlement that we won and through them taking that that labeling offline, uh, though you might not agree with a point, doesn't mean that someone is anti-Muslim or anti-extremist. I'm a practicing Muslim. I come from that tradition, will remain that tradition, inshallah, my whole life. Inshallah. And, and so um, I think that that's a strong way for us to continue to, to as, a, as Muslims in the United States, Muslims in the West, to, to continue to have fundamental disagreements on points, but we also have to be firm on what's actually taking place. And I think within the, coming from my security lens, not everyone will agree with it, but I think uh, I've seen the necessity to engage this, and I'm gonna make sure that we continue to do all that we can to promote uh, um, healthy communities and resilient communities um, as well. Um, I think that's a very good place to end. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a lot of books, names. Yeah. I'm going to track everything down to the <laughs> yeah. best of my ability. I'm going to make sure that I put a link to all of that in the episode notes. I might need your help with that. Absolutely. So I might need to send you a couple of emails. Definitely. But just, but, you know, I want to give you the last uh, moment. Is there anything you want to say advice-wise, anyone listening, uh, particularly younger people, mm-hmm. anything you want to say to wrap this up? Um, you know what? I I use the the statement that we, as American Muslims, we need to be in every space possible. Um, we need to... Um, challenge our um our thinking and we need to make ourselves a bit uncomfortable at times um serving our country is patriotic it, there is no we are we all, many of us came on many different ships but we're all on the same boat we're all in the same boat in, as in, as american muslims and we should encourage that um i i leave with the quote and i just happen to use him i might quote another west african intellectual but i like the quote of uh the 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 whether he's from Afghanistan or Turkey, whoever wants to claim him, Rumi, who says, "I used to be raw, then I was cooked. Now I'm on fire," and I think for <laughs> I, I think that's a good I description of a, of it. American Muslims that you know we we need to we've been raw. Now we need to cook ourselves to be part of this framing that we call the United States, and we need to get on fire in a constructive way. Um, and also make sure that when we are on fire, that we light each other torches, not taking away from each other, but to radically impact this experiment that we call America and that we call home. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Ron. I appreciate you. it.